Hey everyone, my name is Will Malice and I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving the community since 1890. And this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian, called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Sunday, April 26th. For this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So joining me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week are the rest of the news team. If you want to introduce yourselves. I'm Abby Sherpentier, the news editor. I'm Cassie McGrath, assistant news editor. I'm Claire Healy, an assistant news editor. I'm Chris McLaughlin, assistant news editor. I'm Marina Kozakir, assistant news editor. I'm Catherine Eston, assistant news editor. I'm Sophia Gardner, assistant news editor. Cool. So um, this is our last episode of the semester. But um, we're going to do something a little different later on. But uh, to start off, we're going to talk about the stories over the week. Um, so there was a vandalism at the UMass Hillel House. Uh, Catherine, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, of course. So this happened on Tuesday. Uh, reports came in. Uh, we heard about it late morning, early afternoon. But a call got went to Amherst Police Department uh, just before 7 o'clock on Tuesday morning. An officer out on his regular routine patrol noted that there was red spray paint on the front of Hillel House, which is one of the Jewish community centers in Amherst, uh, and it services a lot of UMass students. Uh, it was later determined that this vandalism uh, was the word Palestine in Arabic, it's done red spray paint across the front of the building, and APD is currently investigating this. Uh, they've said that they're in contact with the university and the University of Massachusetts Police Department, uh, and this ended up having a big effect on the community and Halal House made a very active response to it because the vandalism took place uh, on Israel's Day of Remembrance for the Holocaust. So that's what a lot of people have been talking about of who is this action taken by and who was it against and why was that day chosen. Uh, It's been a lot of the community saying that they want to stand together, figure out who's done this and make sure that students feel safe. One thing that they discussed at the SGA meeting in relation to this was Palestinian students and how this is affecting them as well, um, because it's kind of creating a lot of hostility and division between Jewish students and Palestinian students. So I think that's an interesting light to look at this in as well. Yeah, I um, have a lot of personal friends that work and live at Hillel House, so I'll preface with that, but I just thought that their response Um, with the quote that they put over the graffiti was really a great response because it it didn't directly address what happened. It just said that you don't have to wait a single moment before starting to change the world or improve the world. It's an Anne Frank quote, but I just thought that responding that way and saying, we see this, we want to make the world better and we want to bring people together. And I thought that that was a really good response. So um, we'll... uh move on to our next story. Um, so this next one was about this past week's uh, SGA meeting. Uh, uh, Sophie, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so at, this was the last meeting for the SGA, um, the last whole body senate meeting for this semester. They'll start up again in the fall. One of the main things they did at this meeting was they passed a motion to send two letters, one to the administration and the Amherst Town Council and one to the Massachusetts Emergency um, Management Agency. And those letters were asking that UMass use their excess space to house 
members of the surrounding community that are particularly vulnerable right now or maybe are without housing. Um, this motion was brought last week, not the exact motion, but a similar motion. But last week, the motion only was addressed to the university. So they added a second letter in order to make it more effective. They also changed some of the wording. So the wording of the original motion requested that the university remove signs threatening legal action against trespassing and loitering. But um, upon investigation, the SGA found out that there, the signs that um, negate trespassing and loitering don't actually threaten any legal action. So they removed that. But um, there was a lot of controversy over this issue on Twitter. So being able to get this motion passed was a big step for the SGA. Another thing that they did was they passed a motion to stand in solidarity with the Jewish community and condemn any acts of anti-Semitism um, in relation to the act of vandalism to the Halal House. So that was one of the big motions that they passed. And they also vo voted to formally endorse a civic engagement plan. Um, so the point of that plan is to hopefully get a larger student voter turnout in national elections. So um, on the issue of um, the the letters, so like the, the changes they made didn't seem to necessarily address some of the concerns they brought up at the last meeting that we talked about. Do you think that the Twitter backlash had like a really big in impact on this getting passed? I do think that the Twitter backlash definitely affected some of the members of SGA's views on the SGA. There's a lot of discussion of kind of coercion to vote a certain way. There were some really good quotes about that. Hold on. Just while you're looking, Sophia, I just want to add that Tim Scalona was specifically really active on Twitter about this. Um, and something that he tweeted four days ago was denying emergency housing to the homeless out of fear that they may steal your things is built on classist stereotypes and criminalizes poverty. Um, and it goes on a bit, but I just think that that sums it up pretty well and how, um, the SGA kind of like how I mentioned last week should be, it's an advocacy group and thing and in this way where they can't actually open the doors to the Amherst community, but yes, it is their responsibility to advocate for people who need it, especially if they have a voice that the university is listening to. Right, and I think that was a lot of the discussion was around the logistics of this motion, but then you get into whether it's the SGA's responsibility to negotiate the logistics or if it's more their responsibility to endorse the letter and then leave the logistics up to the university to figure out. So that was definitely part of the discussion. So um, for our next article, uh, this is um, about students who are currently on campus. Uh, Claire, you wrote about this? Yes. So um, according to information provided by the RAs on campus, there's about 500 students still living there. Um, and these students applied over spring break to stay on campus. Most of them were already living there. And they had um, until March 18th to apply and then would hear back by March 20th. So the end, the Friday of that spring break. And the reasons that you could stay on campus or like valid reasons, which the university listed when they sent out 
their policy on staying on campus included international students who right now cannot return home, students who for a various number of what they called per personal circumstances cannot go home, and they included in this list people whose cities or towns are under quarantine, people who uh, have a higher risk for returning home of getting sick, people in foster care, um, students without stable homes to return to, and they also included students with internships on campus and a um, viable work reason to stay. Students who are um, designated as critical employees on campus could stay. And then RAs could stay. RAs um, were in a different category because they would volunteer to stay on campus to support the other students who need to stay on campus for being given housing to stay on campus. Um, and I talked to a number of students about what life is like on campus right now, and they described a kind of empty um, campus with a lot of social distancing, a lot of staying in dorms, studying, um, even dining halls right now are pretty empty because you can't go and eat there. And the dining halls are taking very seriously the social distancing precautions, so they limit the amount of students that come in at a time, and you can only do takeout. Uh, students who also had um, technology issues were granted housing on campus. So if going home would um, bar you from continuing your classes online, that's another valid reason to stay on campus. And two students I talked to cited their reasons for staying on campus as mental health issues, saying that staying on campus was better for their mental health. Yeah, right now, uh, a lot of students were saying it kind of continues like their daily life on campus, except for they can't see any friends. Um, RAs are continuing to support students, mostly virtually, but some of the RAs that I talked to would say that students still show up at their door if they need anything. If they're locked out, they can go get their key. And in terms of the response from the university, like the turnaround for you students getting housed on campus, some students said that uh, they felt it was a little vague, but that they understood what the university was up against in getting this information out and making decisions quickly under changing circumstances. So the only feedback I got on that was that students wanted information quicker, faster, because in a lot of these situations where um, what's at risk is your, your shelter and your food, your very immediate concerns, not having very clear information or not getting quick enough is a very, very stressful situation. I think a big issue with this students on campus right now is that the end of the semester is approaching very fast and we only have like half a month left, a little less than that, until all the students are going to need to either leave campus or pay, I think, what, $3,000 to stay on yes. campus? And that's not a viable option for everyone because that is a, a really large expense and a lot of people are out of a job right now. Um, so I am curious to see what's going to happen with that, especially for international students that maybe can't legally go back to their countries right now. Just quickly on that, one student brought that up and I agree with you completely. And she added that the 3000 that students will have to pay approximately to stay on campus doesn't include food. So that's not even including your meal plan, that's just your housing. Um, so for students that are already, you know, food insecure, housing insecure, and this is an immediate concern, you're completely right. Um, that's what she said was the most stressful thing for her right now as an international student, the girl that I'm talking about who cited the 3,000. 
Yeah, something I'm thinking about for that $3,000 is, is the university trying to provide financial aid or um, maybe help connect the students to scholarship opportunities or providing even loans for students? Like, are they, I, I don't know if, if that's something that came up, but I'd be interested to see if, if it's just them saying like, that'll be $3,000, please. And then I don't know if they're connecting them to resources because I think it's kind of harsh and also, that's about $1,000 a month, right? Which is, I understand, like, that's what it costs during the regular school year, but operations are down, and that's what rent is almost living in Boston. I feel like they could probably cut it a little bit to help students out. So be curious to see exactly how they got those numbers and, like, what support they're providing to students. Yeah, when I asked her where she got the 3000 from, she sent me a link to um, UMass's official policy about staying on campus over the summer in general under normal circumstances. So it'd be interesting to see if they release anything in the upcoming weeks, changing that policy or adding to it or um, making allowances. But so far, I don't know if they've made any kind of statement doing so. The 3000 was just under like a normal summer semester if you're staying on campus for summer classes. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if any of you know, I believe there is financial aid available for summer semesters, but I don't know what that looks like and I don't know how it transfers over. And I'd imagine a lot of that financial aid too is partially tuition. And if students aren't paying tuition, aren't going to classes, I don't know what financial aid would look like just for housing. Do we by a chance know like if they're kind of keep everyone in their dorms that they're already living in over the summer if they choose to go with this option or are they kind of try and consolidate things into like just a couple of buildings I think we talked about this on the podcast before but because the university is like losing so much money I feel like it would be expensive to keep so many buildings up and open but at mm-hmm. the same time it would be so dangerous to have people moving um around different buildings so I'm curious if like you know if anyone brought that up or I I forgot to mention this, but they've already been consolidated into different buildings. So there's only a couple buildings around campus. Um, I have the list, and I'm blanking on how many, but I want to say there's like six that students have been consolidated into. So a lot of students aren't still living in their same dorms. They're living in different dorms around campus. I know, for example, one RA I talked to, he said in his building, there's like six or seven students only in the whole building. Um, but in the building across from him, there's more like 100. So it really varies how many students are put in each one of these dorms. That's crazy that they moved around like that. I think that it's mostly um, the Honors College and Southwest, parts of Southwest, not, not the majority. It seems weird to have only like six or seven people in one building and then have 100 people in like another building, especially when you want to have people separated and stuff. Um, I think part of that had to do with, and this is just speculation after talking to people, RAs, um, in terms of which RAs volunteered to stay on campus and divvying them up among buildings, but I don't know. I would imagine that that's a good point too. When the university laid out its regulations for people moving on campus, it had a list of expectations that I found really interesting that students have to abide by while they're on campus and mentioned in it is that if any student contracts COVID-19, they have to quarantine for 14 days in a different location. So it has a series of different regulations that students have to follow. The most of them are just normal 
student policies on campus, like behavioral, no drinking, stuff like that. But this one I found really interesting that has specific stuff like that too. Does it say um, where that location is? No, I believe not. Um, but I think that I'm pulling it up right now. I think that it made it clear that the university would provide that location, that this wasn't like something students were expected to do um, somewhere else by themselves. It says, if you're tested positive, you'll be, you will be moved to a location where you can be in isolation for a minimum of 14 days. Okay. If you're exposed, you may be moved to uh, facilitate a minimum 14-day self-quarantine. That makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a good precaution. So, um, move on to our last uh, news article for the week. Uh, this is about um, how the student farm is adapting to everything. Uh, Catherine, you wrote this? Yeah, it was a great article to write. I was able to visit the student farm's class on Monday, so they, of course, are still meeting via Zoom. So for anyone who doesn't know, the UMass Student Farm uh, is a program run by the Stockbridge School of Agriculture. It's a year-long class. People join in the spring. They make the whole plan for the student farm, uh, work over the summer, and in the fall, uh, they'll work at farmer's market, continue to harvest. Uh, and there's even a farm share that if you live in the area, even if you're a UMass student, you can get vegetables and other foods on a weekly basis. Of course, because of COVID-19, they did have to change their schedule a bit. Most of their farmers were sent back home, and they're still trying to figure out when they can get everyone back to start planting. So they do think they're going to modify the schedule, uh, delay it to later in the summer. And the farm manager, Jason Dragon, said that their deals with Big Y and UMass Dining might also have to be changed. Uh, but they don't expect to have any major changes to what crops the farm is growing, and they're still planning to bring out all the seasonal staples. Uh, and the students talked about, you know, it's disappointing because they're losing what's a very hands-on class. You know, this is a class where you're supposed to be outdoors, you're supposed to be surveying the fields and figuring out what you're doing. Uh, but they said it's a good learning experience because working in the farming industry means that you have to be adaptable to change. So um, did they mention any, like, plans in the instance that students aren't able to come back in the, in the summer and the fall? I did ask about that. Uh, they said it could possibly change their CSA shares, but they still plan to work with Big Y uh, and hopefully UMass Dining. But I'm sure if uh, it was announced that UMass wasn't turning in the fall, it could throw in problems about where the students are living and whether they're able to work on the farm. But they're hoping to have all the students back by July 1st. So um, if this is a year-long class, do these students technically stay on campus for the summer? Yeah, they usually live in Amherst, and they work on the farm in the summer. So that's got to be another big change for them, too, because if you were living in Amherst year-round, it's probably a lot of whiplash to go back and spend this much time in your hometown when you weren't planning on living there at all. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but um, all the students I talked to are still hoping that they'll be able to be back by July or at least find housing nearby and be able to work on the farm sounds like a really cool class and like hands-on learning is always really good but I'm thinking kind of about off of how Sophie talked about the whiplash just being outside and that's like your routine and people like really connect to the earth and like especially when you're farming and you're part of like this greater system for the Amherst community 
and just like losing that aspect of your day to day must be really difficult. And so I feel for those students. So, um, now, uh, this week we're talking about an older issue, but, uh, a little different is we're doing a summer um, edition. So this is the 2006 summer edition. They have on the front page that it's um, the orientation edition. So I'm assuming they had this for student orientation and it's um, a collection of the year's best stories. That's what they have at the top. And looking at like the front story, um, a lot of the stories seem like kind of negative stories I guess and like one of like the big story is rising tuition costs at UMass which I think is like kind of funny if that's like the first story you see as um as a student in orientation I'm sure the university wasn't a big fan of this issue of the collegiate no yeah so we were talking about this a bit before the podcast started but one of the other front page stories is about Jill Carroll who was kidnapped in Iraq and she is someone who we learn about in a lot of our journalism classes. So just seeing, uh, reading about it at the time that it was originally reported is really interesting. Yeah, going off of maybe not the most positive stories that are in this issue, if you go to page five, there's even more. There's UMass student combat credit card fraud and then third drug bust in eight days on campus. So again, maybe not the best kind of <laughs> stories for students just coming to campus, but... I don't know. I think it's funny. I guess on the other hand, if all of us saw this, we'd be like, wow, this newspaper is doing some really good reporting. Maybe I'll work there. <laughs> I always think it's interesting when you look back at old newspapers like this and there's things that are really relevant. Like on page two, students rally for immigration rights. Like in, in light of everything going on right now in the U.S. with um, Trump announcing a ban on immigration, things like that, the rhetoric over the past years. There's a story that says students rally for immigration rights is really interesting. It'd be interesting to see how that has translated over the years on UMass's campus. There's also a cool story about a famous art critic coming to the university, which I imagine for art students would be like very exciting at the time. They also have an article called Third Drug Bust in Eight Days on Campus. So the university probably did not enjoy this piece. <laughs> it's so dated. There's an ad for DVD Den. <laughs> You'd never see that anymore. This doesn't seem that long ago, but it really is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, most of us would have been, what, like eight years old when this came yeah. out? Seven, maybe? We had no idea what was going on in the world. <laughs> no. <laughs> I froze up for a second there, but did you talk about the article, UMass graduate students survive brush with death? But I just thought it was interesting that they'd report on this. It was, uh, looks like a car accident that happened in Boston. So I was curious, you know, how the author have heard about that. Or it was scaffolding fell uh, and destroyed a car and this family was walking down that street. Uh, but I was curious, you know, how they would have heard about that and found the family to interview. On page nine, they have a whole um, page about meal plan news, which I think is really interesting because I know, at least before I went abroad, the meal plan and the rising costs of the meal plan were really controversial. And there was a lot of action around that. And it's interesting seeing this from so long ago. And it's it's all completely positive And there's no um, conversation about prices. 
And I know that the protests, um, at least a year ago on campus, were all about rising prices. So it'd be interesting to see what did people think about the prices in 2005. Because there's a quote that says, food can get real expensive and cooking takes too much time. So this guy was saying he likes the meal plans for that reason. But things have changed. It's also interesting, kind of like as a side note from what you're saying, is just like we have no control over the cost of meal plans. Like, do we have any say in it? They just decide that they want to bring in lobster. We're all like, cool, but we pay so much for all of those. And Emily, so, yeah. But also just the way that UMass does um, meal plans is between the the different YCMP plans there's like no middle ground so you either have like Mm -hmm. a small amount or a really large amount um and it's like they know they know what they're doing to get as much money from us as they can but that just made me think of from the meal plan news yeah it's really interesting because the whole um slogan of the people protesting the meal plan was you can't celebrate if we can't eat Mm-hmm. So with this article and all these other articles talking about how wonderful the food is, there's that in the background, such as with lobster, <laughs> where I tell my friends on other campuses we have lobster and they can't believe it. I wonder why. <laughs> it's also interesting how on this they have like an off-campus meal plan where like it seems like you can use money to buy at like places off-campus. Like I think there's a thing for Domino's. And stuff which I don't I don't think we have now can you imagine if they had one for Taco Bell oh. <laughs> yeah, it says for more than 11 years off-campus meal plan has been the primary form of payment off-campus for UMass and five college area students do they mean payment to the school I'd imagine that's interesting students scramble for housing oh that's yeah, I, about the frats <laughs> I thought that story was kind of interesting um, because what it sounds like is that they shut down or there's like the university bought three of the houses and then they were just told they had to leave, which is just really interesting that they could just kick people out of their homes like that. I wonder if it was on university property and what the protocol for that is, but I know that there are still houses basically on campus. So are they in jeopardy of that happening? Like, that would be interesting. Just also particularly Phi Sig's house, they were the first, like, Phi Sig chapter in the whole country. So if their house were to be bought by the university, that would probably be, like, a huge issue for them, where I wonder if... I just, I'm just curious about how that would work. It's interesting looking at these... Um older versions that aren't that much older because these things are feasible things that could still happen because this is only what like 15 years ago definitely i also like that they show who came to perform at the mullen center we have kanye tim mcgraw and the black eyed peas can you imagine that's such a good lineup <laughs> i would like not all at once that everyone not all at once there were three different concerts <laughs> That was like the year we had Cardi B and who else did we have? Wasn't it Khalid? Yes, Khalid. Hey, Khalid. 21 Savage. Yeah, and Big Sean. And Big Sean. Not quite the Black Eyed Peas, but. <laughs> not quite Tim McGraw, but they were lucky. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a big Tim McGraw fan. 
I think getting Kanye is pretty impressive, though. Yeah, that was definitely in Kanye's good face. I wouldn't have expected that Kanye had ever come to UMass. <laughs> Touch the Sky Tour. So, um, now we'll, uh, we're going to do something a little different because it's our last episode. Um, we're just going to kind of go around and talk about our favorite articles that we wrote over the past year. So, um, uh, Abby, do you want to start? Sure. Um, so my favorite article of this year was something I wrote pretty early on, um, September 19th. It is my story about Maura Murray and how this um, will last year, March her 15th year of like disappearing. Um, so in it, I just kind of go over the case and I go through old police logs and old articles from the time. But basically, uh, Moira Murray was a UMass student. Um, on Monday, February 9th, 2004, um, she went missing. Her car was found in New Hampshire. It looked like it had crashed, but she was nowhere in sight and she had never been seen since. So um, it was really fun to, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it was interesting to um, dig deep because this is a case that I've always really been interested in and it's like really picked up online. Um, and a lot of people in the office were really interested too. So I think it was nice to really connect with other people and talk about this true crime case. So yeah, that one's my favorite. It was really crazy how that article like was basically the top news story for the, like the entire semester. Mm-hmm. I think even like into the the semester. Yeah. It might that's crazy. It might still be. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the story that we kept referring to all of last semester. And, like, even still now, it's just, like, one of the most iconic stories, I think, that has come out of the news office. We thought about making a crime podcast afterwards. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's just a really great story, Abby. Thank you. I think it's one of the top results when you Google more and more. I'm looking at it right now. I think it's the sixth one. So. I did not know that. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, I think my favorite story that I worked on this year was with Chris and Irina, the Cat Lowry story, um, just because that was one of my favorite nights in the news office when we were digging up, like, everything that we could find about what was going on, reaching out to people in the class, um, all setting up interviews, like, connecting each other with people we knew. I called Bueno Isano because her husband <laughs> owns <Bueno> Isano. <laughs> Uh, and I was like, can I please talk to them? Uh, but it was really cool covering that and working with them. Um, and also it was like a pretty big story on the campus and it got picked up by the Washington Post and Politico and the Boston Globe. So I was really just proud of the work that we did. And then I also really liked following North Village and the construction of North Village and Lincoln Apartments. I did two stories about what's going on there, which drew more attention to the university's greater plans for housing in the future, which is something I was just really interested in. But, you know, it was a great year, and I've loved working with everyone. I'd say I definitely have to um, to echo Cassie on the Cat Lowry story being one of the biggest um, stories I've worked on and probably one of the best ones of the year for me and everyone who worked on it, um, just because it, I felt like I did a lot of, we all did a lot of work on it, and it got us a lot of results. As Cassie said, it got republished. Well, the story got republished in um, bigger newspapers around the country and right here at home. 
and um, I think it was like a great experience. It was like it felt like real journalism. Like you went out and you you figured everything out. So that was definitely my top story of the semester and the year too. Yeah, I um, I'm gonna talk about a story from the spring before, if that's all right, because I've been abroad. Okay. So I'm trying to think of my favorite recent story. And one of the most intense stories I wrote um, was the spring before I left to go abroad. So exactly a year ago, um, I covered an event, which was a showing of a documentary where a woman named Dr. Whitaker had worked to make this documentary series on the first ever funeral to memorialize um, the victims of lynching in the United States. And she did it in Springfield. And I don't know how to qualify my favorite story, but this is one of the most intense ones I ever covered at UMass. And in her documentary, interviewed an artist named Winford um, Rembert, who is the only known survivor of an attempted lynching in the States. Um, and he came and he spoke. So I got to talk to him and cover that. And he... Um, she showed the documentary and then he recounted his experience of an attempted lynching, his experience growing up in sharecropping, growing up in the South. And it was really intense. It was a really intense story to write, to try to capture that. And then uh, I remember it vividly also because after it was published on the Daily Collegian um, website, I got some nasty comments on the article that were really racist and really upsetting. So that story definitely stands out in my mind because it was so intense to go to. And then having that reaction afterwards in the comments was really intense. Yeah, that seems like like a really like powerful you know, story to cover. And Yeah, and Dr. Whitaker um, did a collection of etchings that afterwards UMass Amherst purchased. So they're in a permanent collection um, in the UMass archives. So um, I think besides the Cat Lowry story that Cassie has talked about, um, my favorite story that I did this year um, is probably the one that I did in February, which was on the East Asian Languages and Cultures program, which is kind of funny to say, because when I went into that story, I didn't expect for it to be that like interesting and I would get so invested in it. But it turned out to, um, it turned out to be a longer feature piece um, on the history of the program because it was turning, or it did turn 50 years this year. Um, and it was really cool because I got to interview a professor who was in like the 60s. Um, he told me about like how they used to try and table to get people to learn the major and learn about the major. And um, he told me some crazy history about how in the 70s there was this provost too. It's like trying to cut that program and a bunch of other language programs were so like a big part of the humanities and fine arts college was almost like completely scrapped during this time and it's something that I had never known about um so that was cool getting to talk to him and then I also like went up to the archives and I found some old documents from the time that were kind of talking about talking about the fact that it almost got scrapped so that was really cool that I just got to kind of like uncover that little piece of history from UMass that I had never heard about. I loved the story. I, I edited it when it came in, and I just, like, dove deep into it, too. I just thought it was amazing. 
yeah I didn't expect that at all but it was he was like such a such a cool man he told me so much about the program so yeah awesome so Catherine I mean my instinct is to actually go with the last reporting we got to do on campus so of course I can't take full credit but when we got to report on coronavirus because I was working on an update to UMass escalating its coronavirus response. So I think I came out with an article on a Thursday and then over the weekend I was going to write another update and it was supposed to come out, I want to say Monday or Tuesday the next week. And then Amherst College closed. They said they were moving to online classes after spring break. And so of course, you know, I looked at my half finished article, but I think I ran on pure adrenaline for the next four days. Uh, I think almost everyone in the section wrote an article on it. I'd already done some interviews for the update, but I got to throw those into other articles. And I had a class canceled on the day UMass uh, made their announcement. So it was, you know, being in the office, getting the email, UMass isn't coming back. And, you know, I ran upstairs. I got to interview people in Blue Wall, run back downstairs, write another article, make a couple calls. On most of the news team, I don't think Cassie was still there, so we got we did miss her, but you know we got to close out the office together, and it was a really great last night to be in the office. Uh, and so even though the topic kind of makes me sad, uh, it, it was a really good article to have be my last one to be on campus. I just have to go off of what Catherine was saying because on the day when we found out that UMass how it was going to close for two weeks after spring break I think it was a Wednesday yeah. and everyone on campus just like ran to the news office and there was like an electric energy in the room and we were like what's happening and throwing like interviews and stories around at anyone that could like take or talk to a source people were like running around blue wall looking for someone to talk to and that is like always going to be one of my favorite collegiate memories just all of us like coming together and kind of like experiencing this like panic but like almost like excitement to like get the story out and inform people of what's going on to the best of our ability and yeah it's unforgettable I think Catherine summed it up really well yeah I mean like Irene was saying you know you get drawn to the stories you write Uh, I don't think I realized that the decision affected me until I got back home and I kind of sat there and I was telling my roommate, I was like, oh, UMass students are going to have to go through so much after spring break. And I was like, wait a second. I am a UMass student. My classes are online. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those stories that, you know, I was so focused on the collegian needs to write about this that I didn't think about at all how I was being affected yet. It's a sign of a good journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think my favorite thing to cover this year was me and Catherine together covered um Timmy Sullivan's impeachment hearings and that was just really fun to cover because that story was constantly changing and it was like built up over the course of like several months so we were following the story as it developed and I know there were like at least three or four nights that we would get back from an impeachment hearing and it would be like one or two in the morning and we'd have like 15 pages of notes that we'd be trying to sort through and get together um but then we always were able to get it into a cohesive article by the next day which I think was it was just a fun story to get to be invested in because it was it was always changing and 
I don't think either of us really knew what was going to happen at any point. So it was definitely interesting to follow. Yeah, it was a great few months to work on that there. I think it was 100 days start to finish from the first post about it to, you know, the final decision. Yep. <laughs> cool. So um, for for my article, um, I think my favorite article was I wrote about the Tabletop RPG Club earlier in the year. And um, it was, like, cool at first because, like, I, it was, like, a group on campus. Like, I didn't really know a lot about. Um, like, I have friends who are into, like, tabletop RPGs, but I've never played them myself. So it was cool to learn about that. But I think also it was the story kind of had, like, a bigger meaning, I guess, um, in the sense of it, it was it represented issues that, like, RSOs have of, becoming RSOs within the SGA because this group had some of those issues and I think it was like on the basis of just like a couple words on how they wrote their constitution that they couldn't become an RSO and it was just a trouble getting like um, in contact with the SGA so it was really interesting writing that story and like getting their perspective and then you know as like a journalist I would have to go and I got like perspectives from the SGA and comments from them so it was like cool kind of going through that reporting process. I remember editing that story. I think I was on desk that night and it was really interesting for me because I always hear about that process from the SGA when I'm covering them. Um, and it's definitely very different to hear it from an RSO that's trying to get approved. So it was a really nice story to understand it from a different perspective. I also think something that's so cool about being a journalist on campus is that we're not limited to any sort of interest or club or anything like that, where sometimes you'll just go and cover an event and it ends up completely changing your perspective on UMass or maybe even excites you something about what you could do in your time as a student. But just like putting yourself in the world of someone else for like that couple of hours at their event, it's something that they're passionate about can like just it's just like the best. It's so cool. <laughs> I'm sad. <laughs> so um, that's pretty much all we have for the episode. Um, so like I said earlier, this is our last for the year. Um, uh, I think it's the last for me, Catherine, and Abby, at least as as grad, uh, undergrad students at UMass. But um, uh, but yeah, I just want to say it was, it's been really awesome working with you all and doing this podcast and stuff. And um, yeah, so I. Chris is uh, taking over for me for next semester and next year. So it's going to be cool to like listen to you guys every week and um, sure you guys do an awesome job. And yeah. Thank you so much for everything, Will. You made this something to look forward to every single week. And it was so, so, so much fun. We're going to miss you, Senior, so much. I'll miss you guys too. Absolutely. It's going to be a great experience to take over the podcast next year. But you know, it's hard to say goodbye to everybody um, at the same time. And, you know, maybe we can have you on again in the future if you're ever back. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do something newsworthy so that you have to write an article about me. You can interview me live. <laughs> I don't think that'll be hard for you, Catherine. <laughs> we'll do a where are they now segment next year. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So uh, I think that's all the time we have for now. It was great having everyone listen. Tune in next time. And once again, I'm Omalis. I'm Abby Sharpentier. I'm Cassie McGrath. I'm Claire Healy. I'm Chris McLaughlin. I'm Marina Kosake. I'm Catherine Eston.
I'm Sophia Gardner. And you've been listening to the Collegiate News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Crude and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next semester.